Good evening to our audience across the world. We had to take a pause for a month given the geopolitical issue and to bring in our next speaker today. As you know, last month, China and India had a clash at the border uh, in Ladakh and tensions had built up, things have settled down and now obviously the next question arises what's next we're talking about india china pakistan and the global trade with china's brick and road initiative project which china has launched across the world and we have parag khanna the ceo and md of future map i'd like to just a few minutes see parag i met parag in new york about three years back when i was on a panel on healthcare one of our forums there and parag was as usual the events go late and parag was talking about the china belt and road initiative when he finished the talk we exchanged cards and i have been in touch with parag and parag sending me his his views on geopolitics on the belt and road initiatives trade the whole global demography and impact on trade. Paraguay is an Indian, lives in Singapore, has traveled over 170 countries, consulted with various governments, think tanks, and organizations across the world. He has written seven to eight books, and I was just talking to him right now, and his next book is due later, early uh, next year. I hope you would probably even give a sneak preview of what he is going to release. Hopefully. So, ladies and gentlemen, the critical issue has been the supply chain. Given that COVID has disrupted the supply chain between India and China, and particularly in, in our industry in healthcare, the supply chain has been severely disrupted. The world is now really thinking what next and what's really going to happen after the Google call of our Prime Minister on China's expansionism strategy, which also borders around China's brick and road initiative. I would love Parag to talk about it and give a sense of what this is all about and what's the future roadmap for India, given that a lot of supply chain is now moving out of China into India. How does India need to now build up its initiative to ensure that it is able to deliver the goods cheaper, better and faster? across the world. Over to you, Parag. Thank you so much, Kapil. Pleasure to join you on this uh, podcast. It's uh, definitely a very exciting time to be having this discussion, especially, as you said, after the events of the last couple of months have put a spotlight on China-India relations. I think we have been taking for granted uh, great power stability in Asia amongst Japan, China, India, and other key countries for the past 30 years, really since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But now, of course, we cannot. You know, of all of the major scenarios for conflict in the world today, all of them are in Asia. It could be China and India, Taiwan, North Korea, South China Sea, Iran, Senkaku Island. Every single major scenario for conflict in the whole world is here in Asia. But at the same time, this is the largest economic region of the world. It's the most populous region of the world. There is uh, many centuries of history of Silk Road interactions of commerce that have been mutually beneficial, learning across civilizations, all of these things. So the question we are asking ourselves at a high level is, which force will prevail? Will it be the the Silk Roads or the Great Game. Silk Roads stands for peaceful commerce and cultural exchange. The Great Game stands for territorial rivalry and uh, competition. And where China, China 
China's strategy, actually, if you go back about 30 years, time of the Soviet collapse, China's strategy has been to build these new silk roads, these new arteries of infrastructure, these trade routes that is now called Belt and Road, but Belt and Road has only been around for five years. But China has been doing these things for 25 years, actually. So it's been building the new silk roads in order to win the new great game, in order to have the leverage, influence over these post-Soviet countries, post-colonial countries that sit between itself and the Gulf countries that provide the oil and the gas, Africa, and of course Europe, which is actually China's largest trading partner is the European Union. China trades much more with Europe than it does with America now. China trades more with Southeast Asia, with the ASEAN country, than it does with America. So actually, the question really about the internal dynamics uh, of Asia. So when I'm explaining Belt and Road, I often tell people, off defense can become offense. You know, initially in the 1990s, China was pursuing a lot of these structure projects because it became the factory floor of the world. So suddenly, when you have to import raw material, import commodities, import intermediate goods, and then you are manufacturing them and assembling them, and you have to quickly and efficiently re-export to North America, across the Pacific Ocean, across Eurasia to Europe, you know, through the Suez Canal, across the Indian, across the Indian Ocean to all of your markets. Everyone is depending on China. Everyone is making things in China. But China doesn't control any of the geography of its supply chain. And that's actually one of the major reasons why Belt and Road began. It was defensive. It was saying, look, everyone's investing in us. We've got to make things. The world depends on us. We have to smooth these pathways. These other countries have terrible infrastructure. We know how to build infrastructure. They have bad ports. They have bad railways. They have bad roads. We can fix that. So that was the defensive logic actually. But now, 20 years later, China is power, very superpower. So suddenly those defensive invests in smoothing supply chain become offense strategy for controlling supply chain, making sure that you have no vulnerability, controlling the sea lanes, buying the assets, manipulating governments, all of these things. You see the evolution, the arc of it. So I think that even as Indians, we can appreciate the defensive origin. And of course, that's not something we think about. You know, we are living in the moment. We're focusing on the nasty things that they are doing right now. But all of us are old enough to remember this time period that I'm describing 20 years ago when this was actually relatively defensive. So let's not forget that. And this is important because a lot of people think of China as having a thousand year vision and plan, thinking 10 steps ahead always playing chess, mapping out the maneuvers and counter maneuvers. The truth is it is not doing. Uh, the truth is that China is improvised. It did begin as something more innocent, something more defensive. And now only recently is it part of a much broader plot. And even that broad plot is improvisation, pure improvisation. And how do we know that? Well, look at the backlash. Look at the backlash from India the backlash from Indonesia, from Japan, from Vietnam, from America, from Europe, from Australia, from everyone. Obviously, this is not something that China wanted because they've miscalculated, because they've overreached, because they don't understand their own neighbors, let alone the world. They don't know these things any better than you or me or anyone else. So we have to stop treating them as special. They're not special. They're not hyper-intelligent. 
They're not super strategic. They are very prone to error and miscalculation, hubris, arrogance, all of the things that you expect of uh, superpowers and empires throughout history. As India, Indians have direct experience uh, with Great Britain, with America. We, you know, uh, some of us, my parents are alive to remember, you know, the British colonialism, American superpower. We have seen this game before. And actually what's so interesting is that because we remember colonialism, because we remember the Cold War, when we see China rising, China attempting to manipulate and so forth, well, it's not a new story. It's not original at all. It's in fact completely predictable what China has done and has been doing and will try to do. But the difference between the British Empire of the 18th century and 19th century and China in the 21st century is that China cannot get away with doing the things that the British did because the British already did them. And so now it's in our head. If it were not in our head, then we could fall victim to it. But who is alive today who would be a fool three times in one lifetime? Fooled by Britain, fooled by America, fooled by China? No, no country is that stupid. No people are that stupid. And that's why you have this rapid, rapid, rapid feedback, backlash against China. Because no one wants to wait 200 years to find out how the story ends. You stop China now. Resist now. I don't want to say containment because it's different from the Cold War. Very few countries had strong trade relations or investment relations with the Soviet Union. But we all have strong trade and investment relations with China. And many of them are very, very useful and very positive. So it's I don't like Cold War analogies. I don't like containment analogies. And plus, it's, you know, the one thing that China by the way, and, and Russia have in common, is that they both have 14 neighbors, more neighbors than any country in the world. So for China, it's incredibly complex, dizzying to have to understand and calculate the reactions, the maneuvers of 14 different countries at the same time. But needless to say, almost all of them are highly, highly suspicious of China. Even Russia, which is its you know closest ally, you might say strategically, but they're not really an alliance. Russia is very suspicious of China as well, but it needs it and it uses it, and they use each other. And then, of course, there's pocket, right? If you could say that one country is actually China's ally, it's pocket. But even there, you can see that, again, they remember colonialism too. They remember the Cold War. They remember the War on Terror. And all of their experiences with foreign great powers have never, never ended well. So even in Fox, if you look, even superficially, you don't have to be reading their media every day. Even superficially, you would be blind not to see that they are also very cautious now forward in the ways in which they deal with. It. So it's very easy if you're sitting in New Delhi, if you're in South Block or whatever to say, ah, yes, they have an all-weather friendship. They have a strategic alliance. Pakistan is a client state. We use these lofty terms, make imagery of ironclad relationships. There are no such ironclad relationships. Everyone is sober. Everyone is wide awake. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. And so I think that that is the context in which we should be having this conversation about, okay, what do we do next? <laughs> You just touched about Pakistan. I would love to probably get the context around the Shanghai Cooperative Organization where India, Pakistan and several other countries were involved. And at some point in time, India actually backed out because the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is the first actual transfer, is it 
through Indian territory, which is again disputed uh, between India and Pakistan in Kashmir. What is the bone of contention? Do you think given the current state of Pakistan, the project will take off or are they going to be, uh, how is the the project really going to take off. Secondly, the view is that it's very far away from the industrial and production centers in China, which is more towards on the eastern starboard of the country, whereas China is just trying to push this all across the country to to cross uh, through the Indian territory into Pakistan and then, you know, use this as an excuse to grow it or, exp- or, or expand its uh, reach. What's your view there? So, just like we cannot understand understand Belt and Road without looking at the last, you know, 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we can't look at the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, CPEC, and only look at the last few years of these projects within the Belt and Road context. Again, they have a relationship that goes back 60 years, the Karakoram Highway Network. It goes back, of course, to the pre-1962 war and the growing antagonisms between uh, China and India over issues such as uh, Tibet and others. So, you know, there is that history there that precedes CPEC. So the question is really to think of the CPEC as the big upgrading of the Karakoram network of the uh, desire of China to have these alternative corridors, logistics and infrastructure corridors to reach the Arabian Sea, similarly using Myanmar to reach the Bay of Bengal to avoid the Straits of Malacca. It's all part of the same plan. And so in terms of how it will evolve, we've already seen a lot of dynamism, fusion, again, proving that it's not just one version of the truth, one vision that will prevail. We've seen periods where the focus was on doing energy projects and transportation projects and industrial projects. Now they've cut the value of the total CPEC in half to maybe just 30 billion, not 60 billion. And there it's going to do more focus on power. And now they've just added one or two transportation projects. So it's a dynamic, fast changing situation. But will they do energy projects? Of course they will. You know, Pakistan needs power just like every other country. Are they going to do rail projects, the port projects, obviously, and so forth in Gwadar and all of that? They're already doing these. They will continue to do those. Will the the, the uh, transportation projects traverse Pakistan-occupied Kashmir? Yes, of course, they already do, and they'll continue to. Quite frankly, we can talk about the, the politics, the domestic politics of it in India, but it's hard enough to push back China in Ladakh, you know, in the Aksai Chin dispute that's just been happening right now. It's not really possible, plausible, realistic, even sensible, to pretend that one can now go and fight another Kashmir war with China and Pakistan on the other side and somehow achieve what? Regain what? You know, I think if anyone is honest with themselves, it should be let go. It should be a border. As we all know, just like the line of uh, control, LOC should be a border. Also, the LAC with China be the border, right? We should settle these disputes because you can win a battle, but not the war. And this is one of those situations where maybe you win a small battle, but you definitely won't win the war. So, you know, China and Pakistan are going to do these things. You mentioned the geography of industry but in China, but that's actually, that's the previous status quo. But China has very explicit plans to diversify geographically the location of industry. That's why the central provinces 
the Western provinces are getting so much investment. Their growth rates are very high. Industrial activity is moving to the interior. The Belt and Road transportation linkages to Europe are picking up these goods and putting them on the trains and sending them westward across Russia and Kazakhstan. So the truth is that Chinese industry is going to be all around. And every Chinese province, including Xinjiang, which is the critical one here, has been instructed to come up with their own strategy for their role within Belt and Road as aggressively as possible. So we should not think of East versus West. As you know, China wants to have full, total, dominant territorial integrity. So that's I think, you know, even though Pakistanis have their suspicions and their concerns about how CPEC is playing out, because they don't want to be in a debt trap, that said, they are not a country that can borrow very easily at low rates of interest on international capital market. No one is giving them money uh, willingly. They will continue as in quite a few deep and wide dimensions with China. Interestingly, you know, there is a point of view that is emerging now that the days of China's dominance is over, given the, the triad for India, Japan, Australia, and U.S. Uh, Quad, I would say, emerging as a trading block in this region. Uh, there are also thoughts uh, that are coming up that India needs to counteract, build its own Belt and Road Initiative. Although India doesn't need a, a belt because of its uh, geographical advantages. What's your view? Uh, what should India be doing, given that now supply chain is now going to be uh, moving towards India from China? What's your view and where do you think India needs to focus? So there are complementary strategic and economic uh, variables and, and priorities here. When it comes to the strategic, the response to China's Belt and Road strongly includes India's role as part of the Quad, for example, as you mentioned, Japan, Australia, India, the United States, and now other countries really as well, Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia. They're all supporting each other, especially in the maritime domain, where India also, of course, has great geographical strengths and advantages, the Indian Navy's investments in strengthening its hardware capacity and so forth have been, have been you know, very, very central in the last uh, 10, 15 years. So I think the Quad is going to play a very decisive role in limiting Chinese uh, hegemony. Now, China has taken certain islands, South China Sea, taken them from the Philippines, taken them from Vietnam. Again, those countries will not get those islands back. That's not going to happen. Okay. But can the Quad limit China's further expansionism in the nine-dash line zone of the South China Sea and so forth? Yes, it can. And India's role will be central. India, of course, will be making sure that China does not dominate the Indian Ocean, as will the United States, mm -hmm. as will Britain. All of the other navies will make sure that India, that China never dominates the Indian Ocean, even if it has a foothold in Gwadar and elsewhere. So I think that the military strategy towards ensuring a multipolarity in Asia is going to succeed. Now there's the economic and the supply chain. You know, we've heard the Trump administration talk about doing a G10 or G11. The British government is talking about a D10 of democracies to make sure that sensitive supply chains like 5G, medical devices and so forth are pulled away from, from China. There's even alliance of uh, parliamentary democracies with parliamentary committees that now want to work together and ensure that they are coordinating their multilateral votes and agendas to prevent le certain legislation or declarations from being too favorable towards authoritarian interests. 
So all of these things are also happening. You know, but there's the style and the substance, the rhetoric and the reality, things that really matter. You know, India has to focus on the things that really matter, the substance. Take advantage of this moment by capitalizing. Have more production done and do more trade with Southeast Asia and other countries. Maybe think about joining the RCEP or helping to upgrade the RCEP so that it, it boosts protections and advantages for Indian software. This is the reason India did not join, which is understandable. But how does India boost its trade and investment ties with the countries that are very close to China? How does it capture, build on its huge pharmaceutical industry? Uh, what can it do to do more of the manufacturing? How can India's technology stack, which is a sovereign stack? And very few countries actually have that ability uh, and have that capacity to fully produce indigenously all of their necessary technology, uh, infrastructures, hardware, software, and, and so forth. So India can do it. So use that. The growth in AI, the growth in telecom, all of that are exportable technological services. Again, software or hardware or consulting professional. India excels massive globally, a couple of hundred billion dollars a year, as you know, in a trade in these areas. And without the risk that all of your data is going to Beijing. So okay. it can be much more confidently competitive in these areas. And now is the time. So, you know, we're hearing these conversations in, in Delhi. You know, it's it's clear that there's an, awake, an awakening. But the problem is that it's also the opportunity is coming at a time when the Indian economy is in suffering. There's not enough job creation. When legislation is, reforms are not pushing forward fast enough. Now the coronavirus has hit very badly. So there's some, some headwinds and some tailwinds at the same time. There's some external geopolitical tailwinds, but there's some economic and epidemiological headwind and that that's where india is right so one of the point of view of the good growth years that was due to the golden quadrilateral system that was initiated by the nda government in the late 90s and early 2000 which really benefited india in terms of the economic growth creation of jobs one view is that india should invest into infrastructure converts its dumb infrastructure into smart infrastructure and that would be the engine of economic growth in india in the next in this decade to follow the, the critical question here is the money given the current financial system the, the banks some of the collapse of some of the infrastructure financing institutions in india where do you think and what has been the experience of other countries in similar state of india who were growing to be able to raise that long-term capital at, at a cheaper rate and be able to deliver the economic growth? Well, we have to be honest with ourselves here. The fault for the failure of some of the infrastructure management initiatives recently, going back, you know, 10 years, even though this government has committed more of the federal budget to infrastructure, the capex in the Indian budget is higher than it's ever been. So there's been progress in that area. You know, the amount of roads built and railways and so forth is very strong. But in terms of private investment or public-private partnerships, when, you, you know, as you're saying, there's the, the politics and the failure of some of the financial instruments, that is to blame, not the lack of availability of cheap capital, because that money is there. It's there all over the world. So we have yeah. to 
be more introspective and see the guilt for where it is. Why have DMIC and these other schemes failed? Why is it so hard to protect foreign investment? Why is it so hard to get the cross-border approvals in, inside the country to do these uh, projects? This is not the fault of uh, the International Monetary Fund. This is not the fault of the international lending community. Rates have been low since the financial crisis of 2008. Governments Correct. everywhere are And even before that. Yeah, and even before that. Governments everywhere are borrowing cheap. So let's blame the politics. Let's blame poor governance. Let's blame the devolution, of course, that is inherent in India, that it is politically fragmented by design, and it makes certain things more difficult, of course, democratic as well. So these are the challenges. Now, I'm in favor of thinking beyond just the state boundaries. So that's why the quadrilateral has been significant. Now, when it comes to the power sector, of course, one has regional terms, right, much more strategically. What can India do more in nuclear and other areas and really provide that long-term stable power supply across the country. Water. Now there's early talk. There's early talk about doing very large, really Chinese style canal projects linking the rivers and so forth. Now these things take a lot of time. Even in China, these projects take time. You know very well, couple in India, this is going to take longer than we have. People are dying. Droughts are accelerating. Crops are rotting. Food security is paramount. What did we learn with the pandemic? That countries will ban their wheat exports if they have to. I mean, even before the pandemic, the drought had uh, killed the Indian onion harvest. Okay. So even here in Singapore, we couldn't get our piyaz for like for a couple of weeks or something like that. So we have to focus on the domestic priority. And remember, every smart country is saying China has been focusing on its own nation building for 40 years. In America, the, all the politicians agree on one thing. We need to do nation building at home. If India wants to be confident as a leader regionally, globally, it also has to make sure that it has greater self-sufficiency and not self-sufficiency in this sort of Nehruvian kind of way, you know, Gandhian Nehruvian kind of way, you know, much more technologically sophisticated approach, taking advantage of the opportunities that is at hand right now. And that takes uh, certainly public-private cooperation. Look, this government is willing to spend money, right? This government is willing to spend money on these things. The private sector should be investing too. Indian private sector investment has been lagging. You know that, you know, I know that. So at what point does the government not have poke and prod and push and cajole corporate India, wealthy India to invest more in India? And, you know, some companies have stepped up. Obviously, we're reading about the things that Reliance Geo is doing, you know, every single day. The big five, big 10 companies in India, yes, they're, they are starting to step up in a big way. It's a, it's a very good sign. But remember, when, you know, when you, when we talk about China, we, yes, people talk about the, uh, the bats, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and so forth. But the truth is that China has a good four or 500 mega corporations. India has as many people as China, doesn't it? Where are India's 500 significant, systemically relevant, pro-Chinese, domestically investing mega companies? There aren't. There aren't. So there's a there's a very long way to go. I want to just, since we talked about politics and the political systems, so China being a more communist and dictatorial, and India being more democratic, where a lot of consensus building need to need to be done politically, then on the ground 
where the projects are going to be even implemented. For instance, a road can be stopped because a local uh, resident can take it to the court and take a stay order and stop the project. Now, these are kind of certain harsh realities between the two operating systems, I would say, between China and India, where infrastructure development and execution on time, and you mentioned about DMIC as well. The, The critical issue here has been opposition to certain good projects which could lead the country forward in India versus a dictatorial way of China doing top-down, saying that this is it, this is how we will move forward. How do you think sort of political systems in India also need to be reformed as far as infrastructure and, and development of infrastructure and uh, tack to it would be the employment generation activity as well? You know, I don't think that we can make, we can use politics as an excuse, right? We can say, oh, well, if only we were not a democracy, then it would be easier to do these things. But when you know what the obstacle is, fix it, especially if you know you're not going to change your political system. People don't want India to no longer be a democracy. That would be too high a price to pay. So I don't to hear, I don't like to make excuses. I don't have much tolerance for excuses. We've known that this is a problem for, you know, 75 years at least. So I think that it's time to get over the, right? And to say, look, you know, I study these issues. I look at the creation of a special economic zone, parastatal bodies. That's what DMIC technically was, a parastatal body meant to have political independence, meant to have independent oversight and, you know, have efficiency and transparency and so forth. The fact is, the failure of that is not because India is a democracy, right? It's about political will. It's about coordination. It's about, you know, continuity. It's not the fact that we're not like China. So I think that these things should not be these abstract philosophical conversations. I mean, I love to have those conversations. I've written long papers about India versus China political regimes. I've read a couple of your papers as well. We can talk about this academically if we want to for for 23 hours, but that's not actually going to be useful because we know that we are here. We want to be here. We know that there's a way to get there and there should be a consensus around that. You cannot possibly disagree that infrastructure is the foundation you know, in many ways of national unity, which is why, again, this government in the last five years has done a huge amount with infrastructure. It's absolutely undeniable. So more of that, but it also has to be done. You know, local sensitivities, of course, are extremely important in in some cases excessively, in other cases, well-founded. And this is where it's critical because what the critics have right is that you need local feedback. You know, are you investing in the right? Are you building the roads and railways and ports in the correct place? What is the proper way to do water management and agriculture? What are the crops that should be subsidized? Not just telling people, you know, what to grow, but saying, look, this is a dynamic situation. Local farmers know best. Local communities often know best how to do many things. And this is the healthy approach to uh, getting some of these uh, large-scale, uh, you know, sort of engineering kinds of works done. So there is a happy medium. It requires that things not be always politically adversarial. Instead, we focus on long-term policy. You know, when a country decides it wants to have national health care, a welfare state like European countries do, once they agreed in the 1950s, we are going to have a robust state funded welfare state, when we're going to have good highways and railways, 
They did it. They changed governments. They're parliamentary democracy. They change governments every two or three years, but they don't give up on certain core pillar fundamentals about which there's consensus left, right, conservative, liberal, doesn't matter in, in Europe. They have had the same welfare state and high quality infrastructure free education and everything for 75 years. So I think and they are democracies. They're better democracies than India is. So even open, free, transparent societies where lots of competition, lots of changes in government, they still get it done. Uh, so again, no, we have to start there. Absolutely no excuses. So it's more of the political will and the consensus that should drive the will. Well, again, I think that uh, this is where this government uh, has succeeded. I mean, they've had the benefit of a majority, and that's been critical in the first term, having that strong majority. So that has allowed for to have an automatic, some mandate. But at the, at the point that this administration came in, the mandate for infrastructure was obvious because things had gotten so bad. Okay. Certain reforms that had to be done, banking sector, FDI, because it's, you know, reached crisis. It's also, also hit bottom during the last five years when it comes to the banks, when it comes to the currency. So sometimes, you know, things hit, hit bottom or things get worse before they get better. And so it's not, I, I'm not interested in the blame game between uh, one side of Indian politics and the other side. I'm interested in the policy. What is good policy? Should you have a bankruptcy law? Yes. Should you have transparent FDI regulation? Yes. You know, should you be doing more privatization to raise capital? Yes. Should there be much more social spending? Of course there should. Should demonetization be done correctly in an inclusive way? You know, should every single Indian citizen have a mobile phone with Paytm and be able to do mobile payments? Absolutely. Yes. So as far as I'm concerned, we have a laundry list of, of non-negotiable consensus priority areas. And every single one of them needs to be implemented. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. Look at America. In America, too, I can make a list of 20 things that should be fairly non-negotiable. Schools, hospitals, roads are in disarray. You need to abolish the electoral college and so on and so on and so on. I could make a list of 25 things that most people in America say. So look, there are two kinds of countries then in the world. Because if for every country there's an obvious list of agreed consensus issues, then the, it really doesn't come down to if you're a democracy or non-democracy. There are two kinds of countries, those that do it and those that don't do it. End of story. Let me just bring up on Delhi-Mumbai corridor and our bullet train project, highly politicized, and there is an Indo-Japanese partnership there. What do you think uh, would happen in project fail? Would, would India be able to replace the Japanese or how do you think India will be able to be able to complete such projects if there is a failure of the partnership or the Japanese pull out of these projects? This is a high risk of these projects not getting it. There is. Look, every conversation I have with the Japanese diplomat or a business person, somewhere in the beginning, in the middle or the end, usually in the beginning or the middle. They'll say, look, you're Indian. Why is it so hard for us to do this for this project in, in India? You know, why? Look how bad the infrastructure is. We have the best railways. Why can't we get it done? Please help us understand India. <laughs> you know, so this is now it to be putting at risk 
perpetually the sanctity, the efficiency, the deliverability of projects like this is is a huge mistake, obviously, on India's part, because you don't want to have to turn to China, right? That's not going to happen. And it would be great to see India do it itself. But as far as I'm aware at the moment, the capacity in, in the rail car kind of sector and rail is not uh, at that level of uh, sophistication. And the Europeans are uh, just as expensive, if not more so, than in Japanese. And again, it's also long overdue, both in freight and in passengers. So again, it's not China. China's fault that India is having a difficult time paving the way for Japanese sort of uh, projects to be executed. It's not anyone else's fault. I have to be, be clear about that. There's a question from the audience. The BRI versus digital Silk Road. India has its own dominance on, on the digital side. And recently we banned a couple of Chinese apps and digital products and services in India. What's the big opportunity on building the digital highway in India and probably be a world leader there? Right. So that's a good, it's a good question. Now, first of all, the most important thing is that this is not either or. It's not either or. China has been talking about the digital Silk Road on top of the Belt, on top of the new. They're not going to any country and saying, you can have only digital, nothing else. You need all the layers of infrastructure. A country like Myanmar wants to have broadband penetration, 5G, and so forth. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't want roads also. And within India itself, the reason there is no Alibaba in India is because how can you deliver things within 24 hours? You cannot promise everyone in India that anything you order, you will get within 24 hours. So even if there was a digital e-commerce platform for us to buy and sell anything we want to each other, without the physical layer, how will it even get there? So, you know, let's remember that Alibaba is not just e-commerce software company. No, right. it's built on the back of the physical logistics infrastructure. So you don't have a $400 billion, $500 billion e-commerce company in China like Alibaba unless you have the physical underpinning, the bricks and mortar. So India, of course, has to have that too. Whether it's Flipkart, whether it's whoever the competitors are and new players that will come up, unless you have that physical logistical efficiency, you're not going to get the max value out of the tech. And the same thing goes even just within digital. If you don't have 4G, 5G, if you don't have the penetration, if everyone doesn't have the apps, if you don't have the payments, again, if you're not using the stack, if you're not in the cloud and giving people, you know, if the banks are not digitizing, you don't have mobile payments, of course, your companies are going to be less valuable. They're not going to be really achieving their, their potential. So yes, India needs to digitize domestically. Does it have a lot to offer internationally? Again, of course it does. But Indian telecoms, Airtel and others are already quite uh, prominent, Africa and elsewhere. That's not the issue. There's, there's not an issue of demand. All of these countries have demand for telecom infrastructure services, eventually for cloud and so on. But, you know, why is Alibaba cloud all over the place? Why isn't there an Indian competitor to that? Again, it's not China's fault. Now, as I said before, very, very important. You know, India can have a very important political edge in AI because it can do AI as a service, already does software as a service all over the planet Earth, trusted as a trusted partner, as one that's going to comply with local laws, not steal the data, this kind of thing. So this is a very, very important to take advantage of the uh, the strength in the sector that India already has demonstrated now for decades and the political characteristics, the political favorability of working. And that's uh, priceless in some. So 
I certainly think India should be far more diplomatically and commercially uh, aggressive now. One question from the audience. Again, talking about India to reach a $5 trillion economy by 2025 and $100 billion investment by Chinese over the last five years in the Belt and Road and the infrastructure. Is it possible? Can India really clean up its financial mess and its political will to be able to and get to that high-class infrastructure to reach that goal of $5 trillion economy by 2025. I've never worried or concerned myself with these headline bumper stickers, India $5 trillion, this and that. It's it's just irrelevant, quite frankly, right? I mean, in PPP terms, India's a $5 trillion economy already. So these are just statistical sleights of hand, their campaign slogans and so forth. Absolutely irrelevant. You focus on the building block ingredients of what it takes to expand the economy. Again, consumption, inclusion, uh, infrastructure, digitization, skills, services, electrification, all of these things. You'll get to your five trillion, you'll get to six trillion, you'll get to seven, seven trillion, you'll keep on growing. So never think about these rhetorical goals. At least I think it's a waste of do the steps necessary and the country will flourish. Very simple. Right. A personal aspiration. You've lived in India. You, uh, Sorry, you've been in India. You are an uh, Indian. You visited uh, 170 countries, talked to various governments. What's your five-point agenda, the government and policymakers, to get this whole thing kick-started? Do you mean uh, globally? No, if for post, Indian, Indian policymakers, what do you have... Yes, post-COVID. And uh, what what is the direction? You've seen uh, the best of the best, seen the strugglers, the countries, and you've seen also companies, uh, countries that have potentially reformed much faster than India, who are much perhaps weaker than India, I would say. So what would be your five-point agenda to the policymakers in uh, sitting in New Delhi? Well, you know, when you're coming out of a situation like this, where there is a global supply and demand shock, where... Uh, supply chains have been disrupted. The countries that have the best hope of recovery are large domestic markets, those that can be more self-sufficient. So I've said this, you know, before, but identifying those areas of vulnerability to, you know, imports that have been disrupted, that's a very important lesson. It's again, like after the nuclear tests 22 years ago and the sanctions, that was very important in kicking off the IT industry saying, okay, we're sanctioned in some areas, we have to become self-sufficient. That's how countries uh, learn. So, you know, you have a, a coronavirus and the recognition is, you know, we need, to we need food security, we need financial security, we need to have better internal logistics to, to have a circulation, consumption. Even prior to COVID, look at energy, importing so much oil and gas from the Gulf countries, spending so much, so much of the current account deficit is just importing oil. I mean, India is abundant in gas, has been underutilizing, underexploring, underdeveloping its gas infrastructure. Ridiculous. So much more can be done, again, in energy self-sufficiency, whether it's solar, wind, biomass, hydro, so much more can be done. Then again, who has stopped India? Did someone stop India from doing it? No, India stopped India from doing these things. Yeah. Because, so that's energy, food, the transportation, logistics, definitely the financial inclusion, absolutely critical. So 
it's really, really essential because with a lot of countries, when I'm, you know, looking at in developed economies, you look at the bottom 50% and you say, look, the bottom 50% needs to always have the, the benefits, uh, inclusion, technology, education, transportation in order for the economy as a whole to be healthy. You look at America, it's, it's plutocrats, 10%, 15% drive the economy forward, but the bottom 50% is struggling. When you think at a country of India's side, it's more like the bottom 80%. What, how can an economy pull itself up to those lofty goals if the much higher percentage is not, is in such still a precarious economic circumstance? We used to talk more than 10 years ago about the booming, thriving Indian middle class, but the fact is that a lot more people are in that precarious uh, edge and they've been pushed now to the wrong side of it let's face it because of <laughs> coronavirus and so but even before that the warning signs were clear we cannot look back 10 years from now and say oh it's because of covid because we already knew 10 years ago that the average household can't just go out and buy multiple televisions and motorcycles and a car and uh, all of these kinds of things, right? We know that these things are difficult, especially with the currency being so devalued and needing to import so many things. So, you know, make in India beyond just some of the main sectors that have been identified, a much broader kind of approach would be, I think, really what the, the main lesson to take away. One last question for us before we wrap up. India needs to have a Belt and Road Initiative. An alarming bell is our gross domestic capital formation, which has been significantly falling decade after decade. If we have to probably build infrastructure and probably match up to China, what's the tenet there? How do we address that? In terms of what's holding back the country, you're saying? Yeah, our uh, from the economic sense, the gross Domestic capital formation is what leads to, you know, long-term uh, infrastructure getting developed. So that has been uh, consistently falling down yeah. over the last decades. And if we are not able to bounce that back, I don't see a future where we could even match the Chinese pace of uh, development of a Belt and Road Initiative. In, India is not going to match China's pace, you know, in, in anything, right? Quite frankly, that's not, that's not, that shouldn't be the goal at this point. But get lifting up because, you know, China's fixed capital formation is now as a share of GDP somewhere between somewhere around where Poland is. You know, Poland is the fastest growing Eastern European country. It's, you know, it, it's uh, economy is almost the same size as Spain now, right? So it's become a very modern. Okay. And so India's capex, its, it's fixed capital formation rather, is, is much, much lower, still extraordinarily low, desperately low. And as you say, the mission is to be to pick it up. Again, this has been a priority for the government, build, 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 and it should continue to be, but it's got to be building the right thing. So again, electricity, roads, the, the railways, airports, telecommunications, all of these things, but also strengthening the local uh, capacity. So, you know, why do these heavy, heavy grids. At this point, oil pipelines are becoming redundant assets. So one should always be thinking five to 10 years ahead. What are the technologies that will be mainstream? How can one cheaply deploy them now? How can we do it in as decentralized a fashion as possible to serve the entire geography of the country? You know, these are their simple principles that one has to follow. And the right policies derive themselves you know, from those principles. Great. 
Parag, what's your vision for the post-pandemic Belt and Road Initiative 2.0? What's going to happen? This is a question from the audience before we close. Yeah, this is a good point to uh, to circle back and end where we began. The fact is, the most important thing, the priority, the, the subject, what we are talking about is not Belt. What we are talking about is infrastructure, finance, cross-border in Eurasia. That's what we're talking about. That is a priority, and that is everyone's priority. Belt and Road is one program that contributes to that broader goal of cross-border infrastructure finance in Eurasia. That is our objective. That is the objective of the 6 billion people who live in Eurasia. 6 billion people share this goal, from Portugal to Shanghai, from Moscow, from Norway, to to Tananadu. Everyone wants to have this. China is doing its project. Some countries cooperate with it. Other countries don't. Some support it. Others don't. But India is working with Japan. Japan is working with Australia. Australia is working with America. The EU is working with Japan. Everyone is actually doing their own version of the Silk Road this and Silk Road that. India is talking to Iran and Azerbaijan and Russia about a north-south corridor. For, 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 for 25 years now, India has been talking about the Tapi pipeline, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, yeah, right? So the point is, there are many, many, many projects, many visions. They overlap, they intersect, they compete. That's fine. The point is that the more roads you build, the less likely it is that the all the roads in China. So I focused a lot on Belt and Road in my writing, but I've never lose sight of the fact that Belt and Road is not infrastructure is not all of infrastructure, right? Infrastructure finance is bigger than Belt and Road. And Belt and Road will be big in some places, small in other places. Lots of money in some places, very little money. Completely dominant in some geographies, completely absent in other geographies, right? So focus on the big picture. Anything that India contributes to is an important part of that infrastructure finance. And it should pursue its interests, without a doubt. And in so, and there are going to be many cases where actually what China is doing uh, benefits India, right? If you think about a road road projects in Afghanistan, right? Of course, they benefit India, actually, in the longer run. So this is the interesting thing about infrastructure. When you build it abroad, you don't necessarily get to own it. There are cases, the, the very exceptional few cases, uh, like the Hambantota port, right? Which yeah. is, you know, quite frankly, I blame India for it because Sri Lanka wanted India to do it and India, you know, didn't do it. And so then China got to do it and, uh, and, and so forth. So ultimately, though, the winners from this infrastructure are the countries that receive the infrastructure and they can use it to trade with anyone. So we should never make a straight line projection saying, you know, China built this, therefore China will own this. Therefore, China will dominate that country and so forth, because that geopolitics is not uh, linear. It's very nonlinear. It's very complex. And again, that brings us back to where we started, which is that this backlash against China has happened very quickly because we do have very rapid, rapid response that that the way these things uh, play out. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Farag, for joining us today. I need to make a couple of announcements. We've taken feedback from our audiences across the world. We are now on various podcasts so that people can review and and comment on the LinkedIn page, quote-unquote, with KK. The podcast and the link to today's talk will also be on the LinkedIn page. Any questions further to this conversation, 
please do post your feedback and questions. We should be able to get Parag some time to answer that. Given his schedule, we will definitely pick up some of those questions that we are not able to cover today for Parag's response. But uh, really appreciate Parag for joining us today and taking time. This has been an eye-opener of a talk from you. The, the house is divided in terms of what needs to happen. And I think your talk has bring, brought in some sense of where to collaborate and where to conflict and cooperate. With that, I thank you very much for joining us today and stay safe. Thank you. You too. My pleasure. Very much enjoyed it. Bye-bye.